TCU? Do you breathe purple and gold? Are you ready to hoist the colors? Now, time for the most in-depth look at the world of ECU athletics. Welcome in to Hoist the Colors with your host, Stephen Igo on 94.3 The Game. Watch the show live on Facebook and at 94.3thegame.com. Now, here's your host, Stephen Igo. All right, welcome in to Hoist the Colors on this Wednesday, January 3rd edition of the program. It is a Wednesday show, so we've got Bobby Harward joining us today. He will be in studio. I'm in the home studio. Should be a fun show over the next hour. We've got a lot to discuss. A new home and home has been announced between East Carolina and Coastal Carolina. We'll get into that. We'll talk scheduling. We will talk transfer portal as well as today is the first day of the final visit window for junior college and transfer portal products who are trying to make a decision before the semester begins at ECU on January 8th. It just so happens this window runs from Wednesday, January 3rd through Sunday, January 7th. So you'll see some late action this weekend, some commitments throughout the week from the transfer portal and more. So we'll get into that here shortly with Bobby Harward. Philip Pilkington is producing today. He will weigh in throughout the show as well. All right, Bobby is back in the studio. He is brought to us today by Basil's Restaurants and Pizzeria. Check them out. 1675 East Fire Tower Road, Greenville, North Carolina. Tremendous. Obviously, salads, burgers, pizza. You guys know the deal. Pasta. Check them out. Basil's in Greenville, North Carolina by the AMC Movie Theater. They bring to you Bobby Harward today. Bobby, how's it going? How uh, how was your Christmas and happy uh, Happy New Year to you? Hey, uh, glad to be back. Um, yeah, Christmas, New Year's was good. It's nice. I'm still on my um, second set of leave for uh, the new baby, so I'm still on paternity leave uh, for another week or so, which was nice. So it really didn't, in a way, didn't feel like a Christmas holiday, um, but in a way it did, obviously, opening presents, and that was always fun with the kids. I'm glad uh, you finally got a little bit of a break from the chaos, even though there was some news announced on the day after Christmas, but I, I think for the most part, hopefully you were able to step away. Yeah, Antoine Jackson, he just couldn't let me have a full christmas week to myself so i had to write that article was driving back from my grandparents actually when that announcement came back and uh, i believe sam anderson our buddy on hoist the colors texted me and said oh well and uh when i saw it was action jackson on twitter i figured this was what had happened so uh yeah we'll talk transfer portal here in a little bit let's let's start guys with the the breaking news and we kind of knew this was coming based on john gilbert's visit on hoist the colors really uh, a few weeks ago when he basically said when i asked about coastal carolina is there a home and home in the works there he said yes and it was just a matter of what the dates were uh what the uh the stipulation were with the contract that is officially signed has been officially announced guys Coastal Carolina, ECU, home and home in 2025, 2028, 25 in Conway uh, in the Myrtle Beach area, and then 28 in Greenville. They have only met one time on the football field. That was uh, during the 2022 season, obviously the postseason in the Birmingham Bowl, ECU won. 
All right, Bobby, what do you make of this series? There's a lot of mixed reaction when games like these are announced. I have my thoughts. I want to get your thoughts first. Yeah, I'm excited about it, you know, from a fan perspective. Uh, first thing uh, after that was announced, um, you know, some buddies and I were texting already about uh, making a weekend out of it, you know, getting a beach house, playing some golf, and, and enjoying the game. So uh, just any – to me, any of those regional uh, matchups are a win. Um, you know, it's easy for the fans to travel. It's fun from a little rivalry perspective. Um I know a lot of fans want, you know, the big Power Five names and that that sort of thing. But, you know, if you're not going to get a, a Power Five team to come to Greenville, uh, this is to me the next best option. Uh, getting somebody that's local, again, easy for the fans to travel to, and uh, you know, Myrtle Beach is a a, a fun little beach town. So, uh, people, other people can make weekends out of it and, and just enjoy um, getting away for a little bit and still getting to see the Pirates play. Philip, what is your excitement meter on a scale of 1 to 10 for Coastal Carolina ECU home-and-home football series? I would say it's about a 7 or an 8 just because of like what Bobby said, the regional aspect of this. And now there are a lot of Pirate fans that, and I've read the message board since you put it out on Hoist Colors about two hours ago, that are not happy. So I did a little research here. Virginia Tech is playing ODU both of those dates. Uh, we already play state both those years. UVA has an FCS opponent both of those weeks. UNC has their FCS game in 2025 that week. They are open September 9th, 2028, but we needed to fill that 2025 date. That was the whole point in doing this. Another thing, Wake has Old Miss that weekend in 2025. We already play them in 2028. Uh, West Virginia is playing Pitt that weekend in 2025. They are open that week in 2028, but we're already play, scheduled to play them in 26. The only team I could really find that was open both of those weeks is Tennessee and Clemson, but Tennessee already has three power or FBS opponents in 2025, so they'll probably do a FCS team that week. So to all these Pirate fans that are upset that it's not a Power 5 team, that it's, that it's just another group of five regional matchup for some team that we're better than, tell me who we were going to play, because we had to fill that 2025 date. Sorry, I know you had just asked me a quick question, but I did this research, and I wanted to put it out there. I go, So I'm sorry, but this is how I feel. Everybody's mad. It is hard to fill a game only one year out. Hey, I love the research, man. Bring it, uh, bring back it up with some facts. And, you know, this is just John Gilbert's scheduling philosophy. He wants to schedule regional games. It's why he moved on from the Boise State Series, which was set for 26 and 28. ECU, as Philip said, still needed a game in 25. The, the home game actually replaces Boise in 28. And so I, I feel like, you know, if you're going to schedule regional, it makes sense. Now, I got a few texts this morning, and I want to get y'all's take on this. We got some fans weighing in on YouTube as well. Uh, you know, Michael Jones says, if you want to schedule Coastal, okay, but they need that game way more than us, yet we give them not only even terms but the first home game. Uh, he says Gilbert is either lazy or a bum. John Gilbert is not a bum. I don't think he's lazy either. This is just his schedule and philosophy, and ECU needed a road game and 25. Um and then we had some people text me. I had a coach text me, not affiliated with ECU, basically saying, all right, when ECU schedules home-and-homes with Coastal and with Liberty and with ODU, you are basically elevating them to your status if you're not getting a two-for-one or you're not you know, getting more of a guarantee to play the game. What is your, your, your vibe with that, Bobby? Because I do agree. Like the, the road trips 
from the fan base perspective, I think make a lot of sense. And they'll, they'll be a lot of fun. EC will take over Norfolk. They'll take over Conway. They'll, they'll travel to Lynchburg. But what do you make of kind of elevating them to your status by, by going home and home? Is there some rationale behind that? Yeah, I can see that perspective. Um, you know, that makes sense. Here's, here's the thing. Like, I don't know. Number one, I, I, I'd always kind of been on a fan or, you know, I had a desire to go to the Sun Belt just from those regional standpoints, but then having a conversation um, over Christmas break, I did not realize it didn't hit me that all those teams in the Sun Belt that those regional rivalries for the most part pretty recently are moving up from FCS. So you know they're pretty you know within the last decade or so made the jump from FCS to FBS. So I, I get that argument. The, the thing though you got to think about is the realistic perspective of our program right now on the outside. Like we know and remember ECU football from its glory days and, you know, some super successful seasons under Steve Logan, um, obviously had some good years under rough too. And we had some bowl appearances with Mike Houston so far, but in reality, you know, the last seven, eight years, it's been bad football. And so from those teams perspectives, ODU, coastal Carolina, like, you could argue Coastal has been more successful of a football program recently. And, and to Michael's point about giving away the first home game, that was one of my takeaways at first, but I think you had mentioned there as you, you were going through some things that we had to get an away game for 25. Um, I was actually impressed how quick that turnaround is in, in terms of the signed contract. A lot of times we see those those teams – or these announcements and it's not until like 2030 something that, so for them to play in two years is, is cool because it's not like you have to wait super long. But yeah, I, I don't know. I, I have a lot of thoughts. I don't know if you want me to go into it right now on, uh, just the power five scheduling philosophy, but, um, I do get the argument at least of, of just a w- one home and home and, instead of a two for one. We have a question from Russ Walker. He says, I go, where do you stand on a two-for-one uh, situation games? Wouldn't they hurt us financially? I'm, I'm assuming he's asking about ECU accepting a two-for-one to play at like a UNC or State or even, a, you know, let's say a Virginia or somebody like that or Maryland. I honestly, I, I, I'm not against it. Now, you can't load up on two-for-ones or you're going to be in big trouble. You also you have to be real careful about the terms of the deal. Are they paying you for both of your road games? Uh, or if it's equal pay for two for one, then absolutely not. You got to get some financial incentive to go on the road twice. You know, John Gilbert did make the point. Realistically, you're going to be an underdog probably in both of those road games, and maybe even the home game as well. So, to me, if I'm doing a two for one, I would do my best to spread it out. Let's say, hey, 2024, we go to Maryland. Maryland comes here in 27. All right, Maryland, we'll come back to you in 2030. They may not agree to that. If not, then, hey, it's off the table, or at least you know you try to find a work between there. Because if you, if you have it spread out over several years and it's not just back-to-back-to-back or three and four years, then it doesn't feel as much like a two-for-one. So I'm not completely imposed, and I think ECU is going to have to go that route at some point because clearly nobody wants to just come from a Power 5 and play ECU home-and-home and we can get into the conversation about at some point the legislation will have to be involved. And that that doesn't fall on John Gilbert. That falls on the chancellor. The chancellor has to step up. He's got to get the state legislator involved to try to get ECU home and homes with schools like UNC and State again 
And that's a conversation that will have to happen at some point based on how this is trending. So uh, we'll get Bobby's take and then Philip as well. What's your thoughts on two for one? Is that something you would be in favor of at some point? I think you have to be very strategic about it, kind of to your point. I'm not – it's tough because if you load up on two-for-ones, then you're probably looking at, you know, a, say you have, you know, two-for-ones and, and you're piling them on throughout the, the foreseeable future here. I mean, a lot of times those teams are going to be obviously their power five, but but much better from a high, upper-level power five from a financial perspective. And – then you're really setting yourself up to have to essentially dominate the conference year in and year out. Because if, if you're going to do multiple two for ones and y- you probably are setting yourself up for an at best two and two out of conference record. Um, if you can get the occasional upset, maybe you can go three and one or whatnot, but you're, you're realistically setting yourself up to go two and two, if not one and three some years. So again, that puts a lot of pressure on your in-conference schedule. I get it from a fan perspective. It's a lot of fun to have Carolina, NC State, Virginia Tech, those sort of teams come here into Dowdy Ficklin. Obviously the coaching staff loves it too, but it, from a coaching perspective, like, you want to set yourself up for as successful of a season as you can. And, uh, you know, that may mean one Power 5 opponent a year, two regional games, and then an FCS opponent. So, um, yeah, you just have to be really strategic, and I think that's where a lot of the hiccups come into, I'm sure, with the contract negotiations of trying to make sure the years match what the opponent that you're trying to schedule with, and then as well as you're not overloading your, your schedule for a particular year. And, and it is just one Power 5 opponent that year. Philip, what's your take on two for one? Because I do feel like a lot of ECU fans do look back at the the big wins over time over name Power Five opponents, and they want more of that. And it just hasn't happened recently. There there have been fewer and fewer opportunities. There are going to continue to be fewer opportunities, but you do real you do look at that as well. And there there are more losses than wins in those types of games. That's why the wins stick out. So th- there has to be a balance. But what are your, your thoughts on two for ones? So first off, I actually misspoke earlier. Tennessee was the one team that could do it. It's South Carolina that needs an FCS opponent. So if anybody's fact-checking me there. But, no, to your point, I go, um, I'm not against them. I do think they need to be done strategically, strategically. But you brought up a good point there. The wins stick out. And when teams are scheduling us, the wins stick out. Out. When we had John Gilbert on the show, we were talking a little more about basketball scheduling the football, but he talked about teams not wanting to schedule those quad three games because they can jump up and bite you. These Power Five teams view East Carolina that way. They would rather play Kent State from the MAC, who they know they're going to, you know, just throttle, than play East Carolina because look, if they come in and lose to us, then now they have to go perfect in conference to make the college football playoff. Even with the 12-team expansion, they're going to be hosed if they lose to a group of five school. So that's part of the reason we have to look at it from their standpoint as well. I'm not against playing the two-for-ones. Like I said, I just don't want to load up with you know a crap ton of Power 5 games. I like to be able to go to these places. It's kind of fun when we go on the road, and it's a home game, just not in our home stadium, because we go take over Norfolk or Conway or Lynchburg or whatever. But... Um, I like them. I think they're good, but still, to get these teams in here, I mean, 
sometimes they don't even want to do the two for one. They just want it like Michigan, where you come up to their place, they kick the crap out of you, and then they don't want to show up to your house. And it's unfortunate, but you know, all these pirate fans are thinking it's still the '90s, and it's not. the The teams just don't schedule that way anymore. And to your point too, uh, adding on with that, you know, in referencing the '90s and those wins, like just look at recent history of the this bowl series. Like Tulane and SMU were the two best teams from our conference, and they lost to median to below average ACC teams in Virginia Tech and um, Boston College. So, granted, you got opt outs and all that garbage, but you have op- opt outs across all of the college football landscape during bowl season. And our two top teams in our conference just lost to two mediocre ACC teams. So, again, you know, yes, the the wins are definitely more memorable, but obviously, more likely than not, uh, it will not be a victory for the Pirates. SMU also had only two losses during the regular season. That was to TCU and Oklahoma. And, you know, competitive to a degree, but uh, they still ended in losses. I'm not saying ECU needs to not schedule any Power 5 teams, but Tulane, I think, had one Power 5 game, Ole Miss. In the regular season, they lost that. So, you know, it's just it, – it's not easy. But and also, if you can find ways to do it, uh, you, you do it, but it's just difficult. Go ahead, Bobby. Also, you add in now with the 12-team playoff. How is that going to affect it? We saw Liberty get in in New Year's Six with a terrible out-of-conference schedule, terrible schedule in general, but get in at 12-0. and 0. So you then have to balance, all right, do we want to try to set our teams up for success and having a chance at getting into that 12-team playoff by scheduling an easier schedule, or do we want to take the chance of getting one of those Power 5 teams in and, and maybe you do get to an 11-1 and 1 and 10-2? and 2. Granted, you know, very rarely have we had double-digit wins, but that's just something to consider too moving forward yeah i mean for for me like i look at the schedule for this upcoming year and pirate fans want to talk about how weak it is and on paper it is weak but let's see ecu go out and and have a great season against a weaker schedule and then maybe we can talk about all right maybe ecu should schedule harder like let's see ecu actually beat app state let's see ecu go to odu win uh go to liberty and potentially win and then win the conference like until that starts happening then, like, for me, you know, I don't know. I, I think you got to find the right balance. It's not easy. I get it. People want the marquee games. You need them to sell tickets because there's a large section of the fan base that isn't going to show up for, uh, you know, some of these games like Norfolk State and some of these conference games. But it's just hard to do right now. So I still say at some point the chancellor, uh, along with the uh, the AD, John Gilbert, are going to have to have a conversation and then, you know, try to take it up the food chain because that's what people have had to do in the past and it worked and it's not the, the, uh, the best way to do it, but sometimes you got to do it. And uh, I think that's coming at some point. All right. Let's get our first break in. We will come back. We will transition to some transfer portal discussion and we'll talk about some big needs left for ECU. Visits ongoing starting today. We'll get into some of that. And then I think we haven't talked with Bobby yet about the whole transfer commitment list from December. There were a few guys who announced right before Christmas after our final show with Bobby. So we'll do that. On the other side, this is Hoist the Colors on a Wednesday. Everything you need to know in the world of ECU athletics. This is Hoist the Colors with Stephen Igo on 94.3 The Game. Okay, welcome back into the program on this Wednesday, January 3rd edition of the show. It is a Bobby Harward Wednesday, and a quick programming note, we will have head coach Mike Houston 
from the football team in studio scheduled to be on the show Thursday, January 4th, so tomorrow at 12 noon. He is set to sit in for the uh, the full hour unless something comes up. He will be there for the full hour, at least the good majority of the hour. So we'll have the head coach, Mike Houston, on the show tomorrow. So looking forward to that. We we're going to try to get him on next week, and then he hit me back and was like, yeah, I'm going to be on the road recruiting and at the convention the rest of this month, so let's get it done if possible this week. So I appreciate his time. We'll get him on tomorrow. All right, Bobby Harward is here today, Philip Pilkington producing. Bobby Harward brought to us by Basil's Restaurant and Pizzeria. Again, check him out, 1675 East Fire Tower Road by the AMC Movie Theater. Always love to get their hibachi skewer salad. Love their pizza as well. Uh, tried a different salad recently. I think the Thai uh, Thai salad or the Jamaican uh, the Jamaican chicken salad was really good as well. So great selection of options at Basil's. All right, Bobby. When you look at before we we kind of dive into this transfer portal window, which starts today. I, I, I want to say when we were talking last time, we were still waiting. For, like we we kind of knew the receivers were committed, but they had not announced yet. Uh, Winston Wright Jr., uh, Anthony Smith from NC State, also Omega Blake from South Carolina. So those guys ended up announcing. I can't remember if that was before, or after our last show, but those were the big additions from the December portal area. They added an offensive lineman from Maine. They added a linebacker from Missouri, an edge rusher from Louisville. And so when you look at that complete haul, now that it's done along with Kate and Hauser, what were your thoughts on kind of the December signing period and those announcements? I uh, am a big fan of the skill position guys they brought in. Um, the receivers, I, I believe when we had talked last, Damian Wilson announced during the show. Um, so we knew Winston, yeah, was, it was kind of the silent commit that had yet to announce. And he was really of me, to me, of all these guys that he, he's the, the big name outside of obviously the quarterback. Like he's the one I'm probably most excited for. Um, I think he can be electric out of the slot. Um, I really like the Omega Blake, um, addition. From we we had discussed in the show, you know, if he could commit, then you have Anthony Smith and him both competing on the outside, um, in that one slot. Assuming Chase Well is in the other um, outside receiver position, so uh, I think the receiver room is pretty much locked, unless for some reason there's a new transfer that's like, hey, I, I'm dead set, I want to go to East Carolina. That's just a guy you can't pass up on. I think we we do not see uh, any more additions out of the receiver room. Um, the offensive lineman, Darius Bell, um, again, I think it's a good depth piece that hopefully you can uh, maybe come in and, and, and win a starting job. Uh, you've mentioned it a number of times on the message boards that, you know, a place like ECU, it's really hard to get a quality offensive lineman with experience because everybody is looking for one across college football. And, and by everybody, I mean, we're talking USC, we're talking Notre Dame, we're talking all those big-time programs are looking for offensive tackles. Like, you can never have enough offensive linemen. So I'm glad they at least got somebody uh, to the offensive line room already locked up. Um, but I, I definitely think we still need some more. Yeah, no doubt. And I put out that uh, a couple of ECU defensive back targets were visiting starting today. We'll get into that a little bit. And the first thing about five people asked were, all right, where are the offensive linemen? You can never have enough 
Uh, I, I do think it, we can go ahead and discuss this. Clearly, I want ECU to add more offensive line depth, talent, especially at tackle. Like I still feel like I look at the tackle position. Last year you had Parker Moore playing left side for the first time in his career. I personally think he's more of a right tackle. He did improve towards the end of the year. Uh, then you've got Emmanuel Poco, a redshirt freshman walk-on, who is your only returning starting right tackle. And I put starting in quotation marks because he uh, he, he basically took over halfway of the job. I would say half half of the time of the job from Owen Murphy, former Akron transfer, who, is, who has since left the program. So for me, like I look at those two pieces – they would probably be your favorites to start going into this year, and I just don't think that's good enough. You know, I think Parker Moore would be better back on the right side. I think he could be a solid AAC tackle. Maybe he could keep developing on the left side, but I think you got to add at least one, two more guys at tackle with experience. Maybe Darius Bell is that because he played left tackle at Maine, but he's even built more like a guard. So it's just, you know, it's going to be a challenge. They've got to continue to develop some guys in the program. Like you do bring back Hampton Urkel, who has played some tackle. He's also played some center. they got to figure out what they want to do with him. You've got a guy, Jamarian McCrimmon, a freshman who registered this past year, who I've heard very good things about. He looks like a true tackle. But for me, Bobby, it's more about, all right, you're, you're probably not going to go land a, a proven left tackle. But what you can do is add as many numbers as possible get them through spring ball, compete, 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 and see who emerges. And I also think the other big piece, too, is how much does the scheme and increased tempo, how much does that help some of this same personnel coming back? Because last year they were on their heels and it was predictable all year long. Yeah, to me you have to add at least probably two more. Um, you want a, a definitely a tackle. Um, and I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Dustin Hall is coming back too, correct? The transfer from South Yeah, that, that is the expectation right now. Yep. Okay. So again, so in theory, you have your guard and Dustin Hall. You have, we'll just say, fill in Urgle right now at the center position. I'm with you. I'd r- rather move more back to the right hand side. Um, you got Bell, who you brought in from Maine. Ideally, you know, if he wins the starting left tackle job, great. That's awesome. But worst case scenario, you can move him into guard. So I do think, and you've seen it some in the guys that have announced offers on social media. Um, you know, we're, we're taking shots in the dark a little bit in terms of, you know, I think, I believe one of them is not even an FCS player. I believe he's division two or, or if, if that's not correct, but I think uh, division three, division three. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, so they're really <laughs> digging deep and trying to find all sorts of avenues. Obviously, we we have those JUCO guys that that will hopefully help as well. But you've mentioned it, and, and it's kind of well known. You you can't necessarily rely on a JUCO um, tackle to come in and, and start and be a surefire th- hit. Um, in terms of how the scheme and, and stuff should help, um, I think Nova Pirate had a really good post about this um, either this morning or yesterday, talking about he he expects the scheme to benefit, and, and I do too. Um, we we've mentioned it before. That's one of the pluses of what Lincoln Riley did here is that tempo and stuff. It can really uh, mask um, some deficiencies up front 
um, as well as the quick game. But just from a quickness standpoint and tempo standpoint, it, the defense has to be more base. Um, they have to be able to get lined up and, and, and play. And, and they can't complicate things by running in different calls because, you know, the play, the ball is going to be snapped before they get all lined up, if that's the case. So I do think we'll see some benefits there. And I do think, as Nova mentioned, uh, some of the gap scheme stuff, um, some of the outside zone stuff, um, the bash concept that has been discussed that JDB is going to bring in like a lot of those things uh really just switching up the run game a little bit more than what we've seen in the past will be beneficial as well east carolina will have a totally different look on offense next year it'll be interesting to see i I feel like a big part of this and uh, i think you you made a good point bobby was landing winston wright and again there's a reason he's coming to east carolina and, and it's not because he's not a good player but he he didn't play at all Really, the last two years, I played him four games at Florida State, had four catches. But before that, he was an all-conference Big 12 receiver and return man. And if he gets back to that form, he got in a pretty brutal car wreck in the spring of 2022, missed the entire 2022 season at Florida State. Then he came back last year, and Florida State had just brought in some absolute dudes at receiver. He kind of got passed over left the program. So... I guess maybe there's some question, but at least he has done it before. And, like, for me, ECU hasn't had a true slot receiver. I know CJ did some really good things in the slot in 21, Jalen Johnson last year, but they've been missing that guy since Tyler Sneed. How much do you feel like Winston Wright could have a, a massive impact on this offense if he can become that guy again? Oh, it's going to be exciting as a Pirate fan, I think, to watch come the fall um, because, you know, you obviously with his speed and, um, you know, zigzag or whatever you want to call it that he has he you can run some of those you know wide receiver sweeps those jet sweeps those toss plays and because here's the thing to me that stands out he's a great return man and to be a return man you have to know how to read and set up blocks and so that is going to come into play with you know those jet sweeps the other thing i want to see implemented i think that's hurt ecu in the past is or recently is you don't have a wider a guy you can run wide receiver screens with like it really takes a special person to run a wide receiver screen i don't think people see understand how difficult it is because you are trying to set up the defensive back you're running full speed back to the football and then you're you know trusting your guys to make the blocks so you don't get drilled and catching and running through the football upfield as you're trying to then find and navigate through blocks so I mean, I remember we used to have practices just trying to figure out who could, who could run the wide receiver screen. Um, you know, we would set it up live action. We had periods where we were just trying to figure out who can do it because it takes such a unique skill set to be able to do. And I think you can see that in Winston Wright, or at least I envision him being able to do that as well. Philip, when you look at this offense right now, still more pieces to add. We'll get into that a little bit on the other side of this break we're about to take, but. You know, you, you, you kind of look at the offense. Hauser at quarterback. We'll see what else they add there. Running back, uh, Gerald Green did hit the portal today, it looks like, but you still return. Rajay, Camaro, Javius Bond, Marlon Gunn. You add a trend, or a uh, freshman, excuse me, in TJ Engelman. You have a good tight end room coming back, led by, led by Shane Calhoun, Chase Sowell, Winston Wright, Omega Blake. Like, all of a sudden, this offense starts, starts to look pretty good. Do you feel like, the pieces are there along with the scheme for a, a pretty good turnaround next year. 
Yeah, I think they are. But, you know, the interesting part of that question that you brought up is the scheme. And modern-day football is so based on not just having the best players, but having the right players. So you, especially offensively, and you have to build around those players. And I think with the what I've seen from Ole Miss and what I expect John David Baker to bring to this team, yes, I think the answer 100% is yes, there's all the reason to be optimistic. Now, however, that's just on paper, and paper doesn't win football games. So to answer the question, sitting here on January the 3rd, yeah, I feel good about it. But ask me again after the first football game, and the answer could be different. I hope it's not, but we'll see. If the answer is different versus Norfolk State, then I think we're all in trouble. That's true. Hopefully okay, maybe after the second football game, I didn't have the schedule in front of me. I had my other notes about other teams' schedules in front of me. That is fair. All right, let's get another break in. We'll come back. We'll talk about guys visiting this week, who we still want to see ECU add at certain positions. And then we'll also talk some basketball. We have not talked hoops yet. The men and women had their Conference openers last night, the men hung around against number 17 FAU for a a good while, and then the last five minutes happened. We'll talk about that and more. This is Hoist the Colors on a Wednesday. We're live with Stephen Igo on 94.3 The Game. Hoist the Johnny Roger! Now, back to Hoist the Colors. All right, welcome back into the show, Wednesday, January 3rd. Again, apologies for my nasally voice. I still am dealing with this annoying sinus infection. Can't get rid of it. Had it basically since Christmas, so we're battling that. We got Bobby Harward in studio. Philip Pilkington is producing. We'll talk ECU basketball here in a minute. I want to talk first, guys. So I mentioned it earlier, but ECU will have three defensive backs at least on campus over the next few days on official visits. These guys are transfers. You can read more hoistacolors.net with a full subscription. But there's a clear need at cornerback now. Antoine Jackson hit the portal. I think ECU, I don't want to say they saw it coming, but they were preparing for it. So they've been in contact with some of these guys for several weeks now. So as soon as Jackson hopped into the portal after Christmas, they basically reached out and scheduled these visits. So cornerback, I feel pretty good they're going to add a piece or two there. What other pieces do you want to see, ideally, by the end of this week? How realistic it is, I don't know, given the short window of these visits and commitments in the semester. But there's a good chance they add at least a few more. So, Bobby, we'll, we'll start with you. Who do you want to see added, or what positions do you want to see added at this point uh, to the transfer hall? Um, cornerback is captain obvious. That's one you just talked about. Um, I still would like to see a, um, you know, quality depth piece at, uh, defensive tackle. Um, I, I think that, you know, with, um, some of the transition there, I, I do think they need a guy that has some years left, um, just because of the, the, really the experience and uh, a lot of seniors in, in the defensive tackle room right now. Um, and then I wonder if we'll see another running back. Um, with Gerald Green transferring, I know Michael Allen has since gone to UNLV, but I did see we had a offer to a running back, I believe it was Eastern Michigan maybe, um, that looked like a kind Correct. of electric guy that, uh, that could, um, speed guy, maybe not. Keaton Mitchell-esque is what I'll, how I'll phrase it, um, looking at some of the highlights that I did see there. And then we, we talked about it last segment, but, 
offensive line is a must. Um, I'm really, really hoping that uh, they have some guys that they're, you know, looking at under the radar just because we haven't seen a ton of activity social media wise of, you know, who's been offered uh, from the offensive line room or even announced visits yet. Philip, how about you from a position standpoint? Is there another guy, depth piece that you're really looking forward to seeing if ECU will add this week? Well, first off, I do have a question for you, Igo. How many scholarships do we have left? Do you know off the top of your head exactly how many so we I, get? I, th- I think they've got – so you got to obviously be at 85 for the start of the spring semester. I think they have a lot to get to 85 for the spring semester, so that won't be a concern. Now, if you add in all the summer freshman enrollees, they're basically only a couple – Below 85 right now, uh, I think is where my math had him at recently. Now, those guys won't come in until after spring ball. We all know there's another window of transfers after spring ball, so you can have some conversations with players at that time saying, hey, you're not going to play here. You'd be best to move on. You can open up scholarships that way. So I think realistically, all things considered, you probably have you know, a handful to six, seven more spots to work with realistically. Okay. Good, because that changes how I was going to answer the, the question. Yeah. Because um, if it's only one or two, I say offensive line and corner are the big two. Because modern-day college football, if you're out there getting cooked on the outside, you're going to lose. And it doesn't matter how good your quarterback, running back, and receivers are, if you don't have offensive line, you're going to lose. Um, so with six to seven spots, I would like to see multiple steal at both of those positions. If we could get two, probably at each of those, an interior offensive lineman, an exterior offensive lineman, two corners, I would still not break my heart to see another quarterback. I know that's not the most popular answer, but hey, you know, we've all seen season-ending injuries. We've all seen drive-ending injuries, even if it's... You know, it doesn't knock him out for the game, but it's third and four on the 25, and he takes a shot. He's got to come out, loses helmet, has got to come out for one play. Who's going to be that guy? I don't know. I would love to see another quarterback, potentially a Juco kid, come in. So those are the big ones for me. Yeah, running back would be great, um, but I still think it's a pretty packed room. It's not a total must-need. I would like to see another tight end. Um, I think once Calhoun you know, was unavailable for the rest of the year, we saw a huge fall-off in that room. So I'd like to see another tight end, but definitely offensive line, corner, and quarterback. And to your point at quarterback... Yeah. Uh, sorry, Stephen. <laughs> I was going to say, we've also seen what happens when you put all your eggs in one basket. We just witnessed it this past season. So if you're going in with just thinking one guy is is the guy um, and you're wrong, it's going to get ugly. Good point. Yeah, I was, I was just about to say, you got to add another quarterback. And I, I think ideally, if you could, it would be by the end of this weekend. Now, I don't know how realistic that is just because everybody sees, if you're in the portal right now, and you're trying to start, everybody sees, all right, ECU added Caden Hauser. They probably see him as the favorite to start. I'm going to look elsewhere. Now, there's enough guys in the portal. You could take a guy just to take a guy. You don't really want to do that either. So you, you have to find the balance. How do you go find another guy to compete with Hauser for the starting job and ideally get them in for spring ball? Because if they're, if they're not committed by the, the end of this weekend, it's going to be tough to get them in for spring you can maybe get a guy in a couple days after, but I think it's a dead period for a little bit 
uh, early next week, so it will be a challenge. So for me, if you can get a quarterback on campus at some point this weekend or this week and get him committed, I think you feel much better about the quarterback room because we still don't know what Flynn's going to do. Cole Hodge won't be in until the summer. He's a true freshman. And then Raheem Jeter is a redshirt freshman with one game experience. So it's just a complete unknown, really, after Hauser. And even Hauser is a bit of an unknown. So you got to add another quarterback, and it's just a matter of when, not if, I think, for ECU there. All right, guys, let's transition to basketball a little bit. Did y'all uh, did y'all watch ECU FAU last night? And I gotta say, it kind of went how I expected it to. Now ECU did play better for the first thirty-five minutes, but we've just seen this script so much. ECU coming off a bad loss, or you know, coming off a loss on the road against a good team, plays well, and then kind of folds down the stretch. So unfortunately, just more of the same. Although I do credit Mike Schwartz's team for showing a lot of fight. They just made so many mistakes in the last five minutes. It was pretty disheartening. What was your take, Bobby? Yeah, it's kind of the same old, same old with ECU basketball. Um, you know, I didn't pay super close attention. We talked a little bit before the show. I started some class stuff. So, uh, going back to school and, and was doing that while the game was on. But, you know, I watched the last eight or nine minutes pretty intently. And what sucks is that last five minutes, because they fell apart, Part the final score is not indicative of what that game was or the competitiveness of it. I think what's frustrating to me is it's the same thing every year. Like for them to finish that out of conference schedule seven and six is just just really bad. And and then again the inconsistency of play because you get and see hope, I guess, or you you get excited, you see hope with playing Florida tough playing South Carolina tough, playing FAU tough, and then they just lay an egg against these teams that they really should take care of business with. And so that's really the disheartening thing with me. Um, you know, Mike Schwartz, the, the, the jury's still out. I think some f- philosophical things need to change recruiting-wise. Um, but it, it's just frustrating. It's the same old, same old. Philip, we talked yesterday pre-game on uh, with Casey Romaley, on the show, and we, we kind of said, hey, there's a chance it gets ugly, especially with FAU coming off the Florida Gulf Coast loss. And for a while there, it looked like ECU was going to find a way to, to maybe hand FAU two straight losses. But some of those turnovers in the final few minutes, bad passes, lazy passes, passes you just can't make and expect to win. Like I, I, I don't know. I just I don't know what the guys are thinking when they make some of those throws. Like They're not even like – I mean, they're, they're, the potential for a big play isn't even there. They're just putting up questionable passes, and it leads directly to points. And you just can't do that against FAU and, and hope to win. No, you can't. And you know, you bring up the end of the game, and I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you at all. You hit the nail on the head. But I look back at our text chain between you, Kaysen, and myself, and there were some of those turnovers early in the game. The difference was early in the game, it seemed as though every shot was falling. I think the Pirates started four of four from downtown. If you limit some of those early turnovers, which, yeah, they were maybe not as sloppy as the ones at the end of the game, but there were still some bad ones early. If you limit those, you maybe get out to a bigger lead, and then you're forcing FAU into some of those mistakes. Instead, you got fatigued. Instead of building off your successes, you built off your already mistakes, and then you looked fatigued, and then they pull away and end the game on a 14-1 to run. Yeah, and... 
I don't know, guys. ECU has never beaten a ranked team on the road in basketball. Will ECU ever beat a ranked team on the road in basketball? Like in the history of of life, is it ever going to happen? I don't know if it will happen in my lifetime. <laughs> I mean, you, you you think about it in all seriousness. Like we've been to the NCAA tournament two years, and both of those years, it's not like we were top of our conference. Like we got on a hot streak and won the conference tournament. So. It's just, I don't know. And it's the same thing every year, no matter who the head coach is, no matter who the players are. It's the same thing every freaking year. It is maddening. And ECU has poured more resources into basketball the last five years than it ever has. And I don't think people realize that either. And that's what makes it more frustrating, at least for, for, for me, covered it firsthand, is like ECU is actually trying to win in basketball now. Like for a while they did not care. Now they are. They're paying their coaches a million dollars, which is a lot of money for ECU basketball. Most of the other schools in the state, like UNCW, you know, this, uh, other schools that ECU plays a lot that have lost, like East Tennessee State, they're paying their coaches two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars $300,000. The budgets aren't comparable. It's just frustrating when ECU is now putting all this money in basketball, and we still haven't seen the results. It's not going to happen overnight, but – and I still believe in Coach Schwartz. I think he's learned some things as a first-time coach. I, I like his vision. I just think there are some things he needs to tweak going forward with recruiting and development and uh, obviously using the portal a little bit more, but also he needs more NIL money to do that as well. So we got to figure that out at some point, and I think that will be a conversation for down the road. All right, got to get our final break in. Let's do that. We'll come back. We'll wrap up the show. This is Hoist the Colors on a Wednesday. Climb aboard as we set sail and hoist the colors. Back to the show with Steve and I go on 94.3 The Game. Okay, welcome back into Hoist the Colors. Final few minutes here. Bobby Howard in studio. Again, Basil's brings you Bobby Howard today. Check him out on East Fire Tower Road, 1675 East Fire Tower Road. Basil's pizza, pasta, salad, sandwiches, and more. Philip Elkinson producing today's show. Casey Romani weighed in on YouTube during the break. He said Jaden Walker's disappearance needs to be studied. We were talking pirate hoops. I've heard he's dealing with an injury. The other unfortunate thing I didn't bring up, guys, was Quentin Abuja was having a tremendous game. FAU couldn't stop him. And then, of course, ECU basketball luck happens. He twists his ankle and can't return. And then ECU didn't make another field goal the rest of the game. So, I guess ECU just can't have nice things. <laughs> it's it's funny. I was you know didn't know Debunje was even playing because of the mystery uh, disappearance the previous game, and then I hear his name multiple times on the broadcast. I'm like, holy smokes, he's doing well. And then all of a sudden, I, I start watching intently, and he freaking rolls his ankle. So I guess that burial ground uh, moves to uh, visiting arenas as well when ECU is there. It follows uh, ECU, especially when they wear the black jerseys, right? Gosh, dude, it's going to drive me insane. I am so sick and tired of seeing the black jerseys on the road. Like, wear the freaking purple. The purples are some of the best that they have. That's your university's colors. Freaking wear the purples. They always wear the black, and they always freaking lose. And the blacks, just wear them once or twice a year. I, uh, I'm i with you, man. Like, If the blacks look smooth, I would be more for it, but for me... The purple is the best look, and I, there's no reason to not wear the pirate script purple every single opportunity. Like the black should be a very, very alternate jersey. It doesn't really fit the rest of the scheme, so I don't know. 
But hey, we're, we're still going to have our uniform off-season discussion at some point episode, Bobby. Can't wait. I'm so excited. I'm a big uniform guy. For people who do not know, I'm sure they've already been able to figure that out, though. <laughs> All right, we will uh, be back tomorrow, 12 noon. Mike Houston will join us. Thanks again to Bobby and Phillip. We'll be joined by the head coach of the Pirate football team tomorrow, 12 noon, in studio. We'll talk to you then. This has been Hoist the Colors. Hoist the Colors with your host, Stephen Igo. Tune in weekdays at noon 